I'm reading from Hebrews 13, verses 1 through to 14. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of, the way of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for their heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priests as a sacrifice for sins are burnt outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go into him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For there, for here, we have no everlasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Good morning, Redeemer Church. <clears throat> Good morning. My name is Eric Zeller. As I said, I am a different person from my better-known brother, Dr. Scott Zeller. Now, that's a source of confusion to some. There's an infographic available on Facebook if you need some help in that area. Um, this is different for me. My normal role is as academic director of Golf Training Center, as Dave already said, and that requires me to let you know we have some really awesome classes that are coming up this year, things with systematic theology and Bible and religions, and you really ought to come and be a part of that. We would love to have you there. Um, I'm feeling really proud of myself this morning, proud of myself because I have made it into the pulpit with a clean shirt. That, that didn't happen for me a few weeks back. We were in the U.S. over the summer, and uh, we were visiting our home church back in Texas. And uh, my first mistake in this situation was that I went out to breakfast before church. I don't normally do that, but uh, the days were short, and this is a good friend that I needed to get with. My second mistake was that I ordered this big plate of eggs, and I got the eggs, and I was looking at them, and I thought, you know, I really need some ketchup on these eggs. That was my third mistake. But my fourth mistake, and in, in retrospect, certainly the biggest, was that I started squeezing the ketchup. It's a plastic bottle, and, and it doesn't come right away, okay? So I'm squeezing, and I'm squeezing a little harder and a little harder, and then I just really, like, give it a good squeeze. And, of course, ketchup comes out like a fire hose. It hits the plate, vibrates off the plate, hits all over my white shirt, and I've, I've got ketchup, and I'm about to preach. 
And so I do what any of you might do. I run in the washroom and I start trying to clean up. And this was like my fifth mistake because I, I start, you know, wa- trying to wash the ketchup and it's not coming off. And then the time is gone and I've got to go into church and start preaching. I look like I've been shot in the chest and then I went in the pool or something like that. So by God's grace, that didn't happen this morning. But uh, ketchup notwithstanding, it was good to be back home over the summer. It's good to be back in our, in our home city, back with our family and our friends eating favorite foods and, and visiting favorite places. Maybe some of you got to do a similar thing. In another sense, though, there, there's truth to the saying that you can't go home again. You know, cities don't stay the same. As we were back in Dallas, we found some of our favorite restaurants were closed. Some other new ones were opened as we spent time with people. We, we enjoyed some of our favorite people, but we also realized some of the people we love have moved away. They've taken new jobs in new cities. The people that make home home, some of them aren't there anymore. People change. You realize that as you talk to them. Some have made progress in good ways, some growing in their family, some moving toward maturity, other people in sad ways. And the more, the more you spend away, the more time you spend away from home, you realize that the things that make home home change. They morph. They don't They don't stay static. And that kind of makes home seem a little bit less and less like home. As we came to the end of that trip this summer, we kept saying as a family, man, we are ready to go back home. By which we meant, we're ready to come back here, back to Dubai. After a little more than a year of living here, Dubai really feels like home. This is where our beds are, where our books are, where our church family is here at Redeemer, where our friends are. Dubai really feels like home for us in a sense. But in another sense, it's true that we will always be foreigners here, right? It's true for all of us. Some of us were born here. Some of us have lived here for 50 years. Some of us just got here this week. Uh, Josiah Chinayung, our new GTC intern, arrived last night. I don't know if anybody's been here a shorter time than that, but some just last night. Meet Josiah after the service. Um, So we're hoping to live here for a long time, but we understand, and I know most of you understand, that the day is going to come when we have to leave, when we have to go out of here. We live here as aliens. So where is home? Do you wrestle with that question? I know I do. Almost all of us who are here this morning at Redeemer simultaneously belong to three cities. Some of us more than that, we have some 10 city people here, but all of us at least three cities, namely our home city, where we come from, here in Dubai, and then as we're going to see this morning, God's city to come. We're a people of three cities. And being a people of three cities means that we live with this tension, this tension in our hearts. You can call it different things. You can describe it as being uh, culture-shocked, as being an alien, Fundamentally, it's the feeling of not being quite at home. Call it homesickness. I believe that I'm preaching to a homesick people this morning. A people who know that feeling of discomfort. A people who know what it's like to be outsiders. And being a stranger is difficult. Being an alien is discouraging. Pilgrims get tired. The passage we're in this morning is a passage that knows that tension. 
It's a passage that guides us in that tension of not knowing quite where home is. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews is a letter written to Christians like you. Christians who are, on the one hand, zealous about their faith, but on the other hand, facing pressures that challenge their faith. Pressures from family, pressures from friends, pressures to return to other ways of living. That's the, le- the author, that's who the author of the Hebrews is writing to. And this author, we don't know his name. He has a little bit different way of encouraging them than we might choose. He doesn't come alongside them and pat them on the back and say, you know what, you're okay, you're just fine, you're beautiful, this is a stage of life, don't worry about it. Um, he doesn't do that. He doesn't try to kind of baptize their personal pity party. But instead what he does is he comes alongside them and all throughout this book, he says to them, don't give up. Don't give up. Believe the promises of God. Look to Christ. Christ is better. Christ is worth it. Keep following Christ. That's what he says to them. And here in Hebrews 13, as we come to the very end of this book, you see it's the last chapter. He's kind of wrapping a bunch of things up and you see it's rapid fire exhortations. We've got like 25 exhortations in this passage. So one thing after another, he remember this, remember this, remember this. We can't cover every one of those this morning, but I want us to see the heart of this author. He's got a clear goal in this chapter. He wants them to see that their current state, their homesickness, he says, you are homesick, but that's not a threat to be fled. That's not a condition to be endured. But homesickness is a gift to be enjoyed. How is homesickness a gift? It's like this. Sometimes the best way to teach somebody something, and I'm a teacher, I know a thing or two about this. Sometimes the best way to teach somebody something is to talk to them, right? To instruct them, to explain things to them, to to paint the verbal picture for them, as it were. That's best sometimes. But other times, the best way to teach somebody something is to push them. If you're teaching a child to swim, uh, it's important to explain it. It's important to kind of show them the strokes. But there comes a point there on the side of that pool where what they need is a push. As long as they're standing on the side of the pool, it's all theoretical. Hebrews 13 shows us that's what God is doing. That's his purpose in our homesickness. God is pushing us. He's pushing us to see what we wouldn't otherwise see, to feel what we would not otherwise feel, to do what we wouldn't otherwise do. He's pushing us to a place of faithful service and fruitful mission in this city. So in a moment, what I want us to see in this text is the three pushes of homesickness. But first, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the chance to open your word with your people this morning. We are so grateful that you've given us your word. We're so grateful that you haven't left us alone in this world without a guide, without a help. But you have shown us the way. You have instructed us about Christ, about the true help that we have. And you haven't left us in a place of comfort in this world. You haven't given us ease. You haven't fulfilled all of our desires in this place. And help us see this morning that we should be so grateful for that. We should be so grateful for the way that you've set up our lives in this place to give us an anticipation of the home that you've prepared for us. So work in our hearts this morning, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I told you in this text we've got three pushes of homesickness. Okay, so push number one. The first push is focus your hope on his city. Focus your hope on his city. Because it's like this. Every city in every culture has its own story. Every city 
tells its own lies. Every city has, if you will, its own gospel that it's trying to promote, trying to get you to believe in. Look in 13.9. There's a warning here. Chapter 13, verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good, to be, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. He's saying, watch out. There's other gospels out there. There's other ways that people want you to believe, other hopes that people are trying to sell. Don't listen to that. Watch out for that, he says. Every city has its own promises, its own mix of desires it wants you to get, but there's two that are kind of always there in just about any earthly city. Those two are sex and money, and that's addressed in the passage 13.4, and we're going to jump all around. We want to see the heart of this passage. 13.4, it shows us the good gift of sex as God's designed it. Sex ought to exist within marriage between a man and a woman. It says in 13.4, let the marriage bed be held in honor. But then there's a danger since the danger of this good gift of sex being defiled as people commit, look at this, it says God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Sexual immorality, adultery, watch out for that danger. It's a different kind of a hope. Sex is part of the Dubai gospel, not so openly as in other places perhaps. Not, it's not so in your face, but the opportunities are there. The opportunities to look where you ought not look to covet what is not yours to have, perhaps to betray a spouse that is yours but is somewhere else. Watch out for that. He's saying that's part of life here, that's part of the city here. But even more central to Dubai's gospel, at the heart of the lie of Dubai, is the seductive power of money. And we see that in this text, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. That certainly could be written to us in Dubai, could it not? Keep your life free from the love of money. But that's all around us. We live in a culture where the seduction of money is so powerful. People come to this city for money. People stay in this city for money. And everywhere we see the power of money, we see unimaginable expenditure. We see islands rising out of the sea. We see towers rising up out of the sand. We see amusement parks out in the desert. We see money at work. And you just look around and you see we can have designer shoes from Italy or the best foods from France or the best cars from Germany. It's all available at a price, right? And you live among that and you look around that and you see that and, and you start to think, maybe there's something wrong with me. Because people, you feel like people are looking at you and they're saying, you know, why are you living there? Why are you driving that? Why are you dressed in those clothes? And in the quiet of our own hearts... We think about the things that we don't have and about those who do have them, and we want them. We hope in that. We hope in, in getting some of that. We hope in getting just a little bit more. Love of money isn't a rich people problem. Love of money isn't all of us problem. We want just a little bit more. And see, this Dubai gospel, the gospel of this city, of our second city, it's a gospel that's about me. And it's about here, and it's about now. It's making us hope in me 2.0, the better version of the life I have now, kind of like my life now, but without the distractions, without the, un the discomfort of my current situation, a better schedule, a better home, a better family, less annoying boss, just the better me, that's what I hope in. That's Dubai's hope. It's the love of me. But look here at 1314. 1314, the heart of this text, what the whole text is building up to, 
in 13:14 it says here we have no lasting city i tried paddleboarding over the summer has anybody ever tried paddleboarding that's where you get this long board it kind of looks like a surfboard and you go out on the water in this case it was a lake and so you stand on this board and you have a paddle and you're, you paddle it. So you're kind of standing up and you paddle and it's very nice and it's very relaxing. And so we did this over the summer, you know, on holiday or whatever, paddling on the paddleboard. And I got up on there. I started into my paddling. This is my first time. It was so nice because I look out, there's this lake there, you know, no engine noise, just beautiful scenery. There's trees. There's a couple other people out there paddleboarding. I'm just kind of paddling and like, this is really nice. This is really relaxing. This is really a happy moment. But it's, there's a sad ending to this story because it was only a moment. I don't know if you've noticed by looking at me, but I, it's, it's true that I'm not the most agile person in the world. And so what happened on this paddleboard is I'm standing up there and I kind of like lean to one side and it sort of starts getting a little bit tippy and then it gets even like tippier and then boom, I'm in the water. It's about 10 seconds of wonder and then in a moment it's gone. And see, like my ill-fated paddleboarding, cities have their moment, they have their, their beautiful scene, and then they're gone. Dubai is not going to last. It may be centuries from now, but this city is going to go the way of every city since the dawn of time, and guess what? You're going to be gone a lot sooner than that. In Dubai, we spend our lives amassing pleasures and amassing properties that are all going to pass away. Whatever it is you're saving up for in your home country, maybe that's part of your hope. Maybe you're saying, okay, I'm hoping back in my first city, I'm going to buy an apartment there. I'm going to have savings there. I'm going to be a big person there when I go back. Maybe that's good stewardship, but guess what? That's going to pass away too. Neither your first city nor your second city can ever satisfy your deep-seated longing for a permanent home. And here we don't have a lasting city. So if your hope is in this city, your hope is all about your comfort and your position in this city, that's not going to work out. This city is not going to take away your homesickness. After all, it's built on sand. So if you focus on the first part of 1314, here we have no lasting city. That's discouraging. It's not going to last. But read on. But we seek the city that is to come. And that's the push. For a Christian, homesickness in this world is not a bad thing. It's a reminder that this world can't fulfill our hopes and that God has something planned that is better than our hopes. He's going to make a place for us, a permanent place, a lasting place, a forever city. Hear his promise in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. He's making a place. It's a permanent place. It's a place that's going to remain. It's not like the cities of this world. It's not going to pass away like them. It's going to remain. In Hebrews 9.15, this is called the believer's eternal inheritance. You have an inheritance. It's an eternal one. It's going to last. 10.34 You have a better possession and an abiding one. You possess that as a believer. You own that, that abiding possession. 
Look at 12.28, just above our passage in chapter 13. In 12.28 it says, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's our hope. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. Our hope is in not in this city, but it's in that city. The unshakable kingdom of God. We don't hope in a temporary city. We hope in an eternal one. Focus on that hope, Redeemer. Look to that hope. Don't wallow in homesickness. Experience the homesickness. Experience that longing in your heart as a gracious message of God, as a gentle push, as a kind reminder to focus on his city. Be faithful in this city. Provide for your family. Make disciples here. But live here for there. Keep seeking that city. Seek it today and seek it tomorrow. This is what Abraham did. You guys know the story of Abraham in the Bible. That story is retold in chapter 11. Go back to Hebrews 11 and verse 8, a couple pages over. Hebrews 11:8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Stop there. So here's a guy, Abraham. He, he was from an important city. He had an important father. He had some possessions. He was a man of, of some means. But following God by faith resulted in him and his son and his grandson living in tents on foreign sand. Abraham had a choice. He could have focused on that tent. He could have whined about what other people weren't doing for him to make his tent more comfortable. He could have wholeheartedly pursued the comfort of that tent. I'm going to build a better tent. I'm going to put a wind tower in this thing to make it cooler. I'm going to get an espresso machine. He could have really made his tent very nice. But that's not what he did. Because Abraham, as we read his story in Genesis, Abraham understood the purpose of a tent. The purpose purpose of a tent is not to be comfortable. It's not to stay in for a long time. But the purpose of a tent is a temporary shelter on the way to where you're going. Verse 10, Hebrews 11:10. For Abraham was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. See, Abraham was a man of three cities. He had his home city, his city where he sojourned, but he was looking forward to a different city. He didn't mind being homesick in a tent because he was on his way to a city. His descendants had the same mindset. They were a three-city people too. Look at verse 13, Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Sound familiar? 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Let's read that again, 14. People who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Are you one of those people? Are you one of those people who, by the way you live and by the way you speak, makes it clear to the people in your life, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, that you have a hope and that hope is not here? Do you make it clear that you are seeking a homeland? That's what they did. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, 
They would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Are we going to be that kind of people, Redeemer? Or are we going to spend our lives building a better tent? We're surrounded by people in this city who are so enjoying the trip, they've forgotten about the destination. They're building igloos, and they live in the desert. But God uses homesickness to push us to a better hope. So that's push number one. Push number one, focus your hope on his city. And maybe you're sitting here and you say, okay, I want the city to come as much as the next guy. That sounds pretty good. But I am still here. So what does it look like? What does it look like to live here for there? And so our gracious God gives us a second push. The second push, push number two, fill your heart with his church. Fill your heart with his church. 13.1. Look at 13.1. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. That's the first exhortation. The one that stands at the head of them all. Love your brothers. Love your sisters, your brothers and sisters in Christ, the ones that Christ has bought with a price and put you into the same body with. Let them be your passion. Fill your heart with them. Let them receive your sacrificial service. Let them receive your humble encouragement. Stick with them. Forgive them. Be patient with them. Fill your heart with the people here, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what you aliens should be doing in a difficult place, in a difficult time. Love the church. That's what's going to keep your hope and your mission alive. Fill your heart with his church. And with these readers, as with you, it's happening already. He doesn't say, start loving the church. He says, continue. Let that continue. Continue to love, to let the love, brotherly love continue. But then he comes to 13.2. He talks about another kind of love. 13.2. Uh, rem- <clears throat> Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. There's a little play on words here. You don't see it so clearly, but in 13.2, the phrase, show hospitality, could be translated, show love to strangers. It's from the same root in the original language and from sounds similar to the word in 13.1. So 13.1, uh, show love to brothers. 13.2, show love to strangers. He's saying, let's hit both of those. And this could be talking about hospitality outside the church, but I don't think it is. And the reason why is at the end of verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says, since you also are in the body. So he's talking about other people in the body. You're, you're the body of Christ. Here's you. Here's other people in the body. You're all in it together. Show love to the brothers, but also show love to the strangers, to the strangers within the body, the people who are here as a part of the church and maybe in other places in the world as part of the church. They are your brothers. They are your sisters, but you don't know them. Show love to them too, he's saying. It was a pretty rough time in the church back then. People were getting arrested. People were getting beat up. People were going to prison. People were economically impoverished. They had a lot of suffering. They had a lot of needs. And he's saying, watch out for that. Have eyes that look for those kinds of things. Have eyes that look for a need that don't just look to your friends. Don't just look to your family, the people you know. But look around you and see what's going on. See where you can help. See where you can show love. People here in this church need your help. People in the body of Christ need your help. Love them. You're here, Redeemer. You love the church. Great. I love it too. You attend services. You attend small groups. You're doing very well. 
That's great. Keep after that. Let it continue. But don't stop there, he's saying. Fill your heart with all of his church. You can't be best friends with everybody, but what you can do is each time you come in here, you can meet somebody else. You can get to know somebody else. You can widen little by little that circle of those who know that you love them, who've experienced your encouragement, who've experienced your help. Fill your heart with his church. In 13.2, he says, do not neglect this. Do not neglect to show this kind of love. I think we do neglect to show this kind of love too often. Think of it this way. I have a friend, <clears throat> friend who behaves in a very embarrassing way at restaurants, okay? So if you go to a restaurant with this friend, uh, what happens is you all sit down, and the, the waiter comes to take your order, and my friend starts asking all kinds of ridiculous things. What are the ingredients in this? What goes into this sauce? How is this cooked? And she starts ordering things that are not on the menu. Like, oh, could you maybe just make one of these? Could you do this? And, and so it's all very high maintenance. And so that's just the ordering. But then after a little bit, the food comes and it's never to her satisfaction. They made her this thing that she wanted. And she says, oh no, I don't want that. I, you know, you need to cook this more. You need to do this thing differently. Take it back to the kitchen and do something differently. And meanwhile, the rest of us at the table are sitting here, you know, trying to make ourselves small, like trying to hide our faces. We don't want to catch the eye of the waiter knowing, you know, what's going on. We're a little bit afraid of what's happened to our food, what they might have put in there as revenge for what she's doing. We are feeling the reproach of people all around the restaurant looking at us and seeing us and thinking that we are with her. It would be easier not to go to the restaurant. And as people from a different city living here, we already feel this kind of natural awkwardness, this natural reproach <clears throat> from others. And an easy, way to, uh, an easy way to diminish that would be to assimilate, just to believe the gospel of the city, to become like everybody else, to come to share their values and their hopes. And when we don't do that, when we're not like everybody else, and we don't hope in what they hope in, the reproach increases. That looks weird to people. When, as, as we said already, as we're speaking of our different hope, as we're people who speak of our priorities that are different, that's going to make some disciples, but it's going to make some enemies too. There's going to be some reproach that comes from that. <clears throat> and if that's true at the best of times, uh, <clears throat> how much more is it true when persecution happens? How much more true is it when it's a difficult time and a difficult place for the church? Excuse me. Reproach comes as we love the church, as our priorities are in heaven. But he's saying here, don't let brotherly love be the victim of fear. Don't be afraid of who your neighbors are going to see you hanging out with. Don't be afraid of what people are going to say when they hear about your priorities to serve in church and be a part of church and love the body of Christ. Don't be afraid of that. Don't let that stuff be the victim of overscheduling. Don't neglect it. Prioritize that. Prioritize love. Brotherly love has to continue. Fill your heart with his church. And as you've seen, as we looked at sex and money and then thinking about love and the church, there's two different loves happening in this passage, right? There's a love of money, the love of pleasure, this, this self-satisfying love that's all about me, all about this earthly city. And then on the other hand, there's this self-sacrificing, mission-enabling, leader-submitting, Christ-exalting love that is the property of Christians. And in those two different loves, we have the priorities of two different cities. 
We have the love of the earthly city. We have the love of the heavenly city. And both of those loves in them, they preview the future of their city. As you pursue the love of this city, as you pursue pleasure and you pursue self and you pursue materials, you know what you feel? Maybe an initial burst of pleasure. What do you feel at the end of that? After the adrenaline wears off? You feel empty. We've all felt it at times. Maybe some of us are feeling that now, the passing pleasure of sin, the hollowness of success, the feeling that I thought this was going to be really great, but it is not. I don't feel anything inside. There must be something more. But there is nothing more. What you're feeling and what you're tasting when you see that is the future of the earthly city the city that you're loving, the city that you're hoping in, the future of that city is nothing. So when you love it, you feel nothing because it's passing away. But when you fill your heart with Christ's church, you get a preview of something else. This city is not going to last, but you can have something here that will. In the love of the body of Christ, as we come together as God's people from every nation and represent him as the embassy of the new creation, as we participate in this body, we can taste the city that is to come. It's not a perfect taste. It's a broken taste because we're broken people. It's like a cookie with raisins in it. You take a bite and you think, <gasps> and then you taste that dried up raisin, you know, grape and you're like, oh, that's not too good. It's, it's there for a minute. For the moment, you feel it and you see it. And it's imperfect. But here, in this place, here in the body of Christ, here in showing love and receiving love from others in the church, we come as close to home as we will ever come until we're finally there. So fill your love, fill your heart with the church. How sad, how sad would it be for us if we never felt homesick here? How sad would that be? Woe to us if we feel so at home, if we feel so comfortable here, if we fit so well that we just so easily and naturally spend our lives loving that which is going to pass away. So kind of God to make us homesick. So kind of God to push us away from loving the things of this city and push us towards hoping in him. But listen, What I don't mean to say this morning is that any of this is easy. It is not easy. The truth is it's really hard. And and if you're like me, you hear this, okay, push number one, focus your hope on his city, and you realize, well, I don't do that. So much of the time, my hope is here. You hear push number two, fill your heart with his church, and you say, oh, snap. The truth is I love this place. I love this city, I love myself, I love my stuff, I, my love for the church is so flawed, it's so partial. And you think maybe, great stuff, Eric, but this is not what's going to work for me. I'm more flawed than that. I'm more broken than that. This is not what's going to work for me in my path. But I've got good news for you and for me which is that there is not only two pushes. God gives us a third push. And the third push is the most important of all. It's the one that makes all the other ones work because push number three is find your help in his Christ. 
find your help in his Christ. Look at 13.6. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He's quoting from Psalm 118. He's looking back at the scripture he knows. He's reading the promises of God. He's believing it and saying, I can be confident. The Lord is my help. What can man do to me? That's my help. In Christ is the help that we need. But how? How does Jesus help us? Our author is going to explain. Fair warning, these next verses get a little bit strange. And around 1310, the exhortation kind of dries up. And we start hearing about altars and sacrifices and fires and, and what is going on there. Okay, well, what's going on there is that's, that's Old Testament stuff. It's Leviticus stuff. We don't know our Leviticus very well, but uh, that's the kind of stuff that's talked about there. And you just heard that Dave is planning on preaching Leviticus. And he also announced that we're, we have not enough space here. The room is too full. And that's his, <clears throat> that's his solution. He's going to preach Leviticus and then that'll maybe winnow it down a little bit. Uh, but for those of us who remain, we're going to learn a lot about Leviticus soon. But for now, we've got a couple things we need to understand from Leviticus. And the first is this phrase, outside the camp. You see that in 1311, outside the camp? It's, uh, the, here's the idea. The idea is that as Israel moved through the desert, they stayed in a large camp, right? They all set up their tents and they had boundaries and they had walls. It's kind of a portable city. The tabernacle was there for the worship of Yahweh. So the camp was considered holy. The camp was set apart to God. And they had rules about certain things that were unclean and could not be in the camp. It's like when I was sitting down here before the service in this chair right here in the front row, Dave's sitting next to me. And as the service is beginning, I kind of hear this <clears throat> and um, kind of look over there. And then a minute later, like, <clears throat> and like pretty soon he's like coughing constantly. And I start to get a little worried because I'm sitting here next to him and saying, this man is not well. Like, I don't know if I want to be here right now. I want to move this way. He's going to get me sick. I don't want to be sick. Let's have some space, Dave. Actually, Dave, could you go over there to the other side of the room, please? I don't want to be near you right now. It's not personal. I like you, but please go over there. And that's this idea of outside the camp. By the way, if you've got any hand sanitizer, I'll take some after the service. But outside the camp, that's where you put the people that you don't want to be around. That day, if you have a leper, they have a contagious disease, they need to go out there. If somebody is ceremonial unclean, they need to go out there. Criminals have committed certain crimes, they need to go out there. It's a place for people and you need to be separated from the others to be excluded from worship. They were unclean. The second Old Testament idea we've got to get is this idea of the Day of Atonement. We read it earlier, Daniel read from Leviticus 16, which describes this most solemn day in all of the Jewish calendar. It was a day when special sacrifices were offered. These were the sacrifices that atoned for the sins of the people. They were recognizing, we are sinners. We are guilty before God. Something has to be done about that guilt. That's true of us today, right? Something has to be done about our guilt before God. We've broken his law. What can be done? And in that day, their answer was the day of atonement. The day of atonement, let's sacrifice these animals. Let's send this goat out into the wilderness. That will leave our guilt before God. But they had these special sacrifices. Because on, in, during regular days of worship, they would sacrifice animals. And the meat of that sacrifice, the flesh of the animal, would be cooked, essentially, and given to the priest's family. It was part of their food. It was kind of part of their income. But on the day of atonement... The sacrifices were not given to the priests. On the Day of Atonement, they would sacrifice these animals, and then the carcasses would be taken outside the camp to that unclean place, and there they would be burned up entirely. They would be consumed. That happened on the Day of Atonement. 
So that's Old Testament background. With all that in mind, look at 13.12. 13.12. So Jesus. So Jesus. Like these Day of Atonement sacrifices I was just talking about. Like those sacrifices, look what Jesus did. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. So Jesus suffered outside the gate. Think just like those sacrifices. Just like those carcasses of animals that were burned up in this unclean place. He's saying Jesus is like that. What Jesus did is like that. And that's true in a literal sense. The place where Jesus was crucified was physically outside the walls of Jerusalem. But it's also true in a metaphorical sense because throughout Jesus' life, he was against their city. He was preaching a different hope than the city proclaimed. He loved the city, but he had a different gospel than their city had. So they tried him on false charges. They condemned him to death. They rejected him as unclean, as filthy, as disgusting. This Jesus was a defeated foe. He was worthy of shame. So they did shame him. They, they beat him. They mocked him. They laughed at one who wasn't just defeated. He was a disgrace. He was a failure. He was a fool. They took this man, this would-be leader, and they said, you go out there. You go outside the camp. And oh, the irony that the innocent one was sent to the place that was reserved for the criminals. The cleanest one was sent to the place of uncleanness. The sinless one was sent to the darkest place. That's what happened on the cross. He cried out, Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went out there. He went outside the camp. And it says in 1314, 1313, 1312, So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's what he was doing there. He was sanctifying us. We are not holy we are guilty before God. But as we sang this morning, this, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us. That's what he did. He became sin for us. What happened on that cross was the day of atonement par excellence, the sin offering to end all sin offerings, the true sin offering to which the blood of bulls and goats could only point. It says in Hebrews 10, 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. An animal sacrifice can't ultimately help you, but Jesus can. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22. An animal can't forgive your sins, but Jesus can. Jesus died outside the gate to sanctify the people, to sanctify the church, to create a group of people, of brothers and sisters who are holy before God. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has done it. God looks at his church. God looks at me. He looks at you. He looks at all of us together. He doesn't see sin. He doesn't see guilt. He doesn't see our lack of love and our lack of hope. God sees the perfection of Christ when he looks at this room. Find your help in him. Find your help in Christ, the one who became sin for you. Therefore, my homesick brothers, my homesick sisters, 1313, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. He went out there. Let's go out there. 
Let's go with him. Let's not stay in here. Let's not keep hoping in this city. Let's not keep loving the things of this city. Let's not try to be an insider, but let's go out there. It's not going out for its own sake. I'm not trying to be weird for the sake of being weird. I'm trying to go out there to Christ. Go out to him. This city whispers, don't go out there. Don't go out there. Stay in here. Make me your hope. Make me your dreams. Believe in my promises. Brothers and sisters, God's word says to you this morning, go out there. Go out there. Don't get dragged out there, kicking and screaming, but run out there. Consider your options. Look at the inside of the camp. Look at the outside of the camp and say, I want to go out there with Christ. Moses went out there. As we close, look back a couple pages at the story of Moses, Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses was inside the camp. Moses had it all. He had comfort. He had possession. Some say he could have been the next Pharaoh, but he went out there. 1125, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. There were lots of pleasures in Egypt, lots of hope there, but he knew that gospel of Egypt was fleeting, and so he traded it away. He traded comfort for mistreatment. He went out there. Why? 1126, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He said, I'll go out there. I will go outside the camp. There's two treasures being offered here, the treasures of Egypt and the mistreatment of the people of God. But the mistreatment of the people of God is the better treasure. It's the lasting treasure. It's the eternal treasure. I'll go out there, said Moses. He was a man of three cities. He found his health in this Christ. Brothers and sisters, this morning, find your help in this Christ. As it's hard to live as a person of three cities, look to him. If you're homesick, go to the one who had no home. If you're an outsider, go to the one who is rejected. If you're mistreated, go to your Lord who was crucified for you. And if you're worried about all the concerns, all the real cares of these transient things of earth. Look to the one who it says in 13.8 is the same yesterday and today and forever. Redeemer Church, you are a people of three cities, a people who ache for home. Don't fight that homesickness. Let the homesickness push you to your true home. Let it push you to focus your hope on his city. Let it push you to fill your heart with his church and let it push you to find your help in his Christ. The one who is forsaken will never forsake you. He will be with you all the way home. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Christ. Thank you for our help. Thank you for the way that you looked at, the, at sin, at the brokenness of the world, at sinners like us. And you didn't leave us to face your judgment, but you sent a Savior. You sent Jesus to be our help. 
May we treasure him in this world. During this time that we're here on earth, may he be of most value to us. May we hope in what he offers us. May we hope in his city. May we be a faithful pilgrim people here in this city that make many disciples for our great Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.